0: Alright, welcome back to Wednesday night teaching. I think the last time we did this was back in March. We finished the book of Romans, did we not? And I was gonna start something new and I can't even remember what I was gonna start. But we're going to, we're starting the fruit of the Spirit tonight. And before we actually jump into the fruit of the Spirit, it's, it's in the middle of Galatians chapter 5. And so before we jump into Galatians chapter five, fruit of the spirit, we really need to know the context of what Paul is leading up to. So actually over the next probably seven, eight weeks, we are going to be in Galatians five, sixteen through 26. So the second half of Galatians. So we're gonna look at the whole chapter together because you really can't understand the fruit of the spirit unless you understand Paul's argument. Now, how many of you have seen the movie or read the books, The Lord of the Rings Trilogies? Okay, a lot of you have read the books. Okay, so if you don't know about the movies or the books, um, the whole thing centers around this ring. This ring has power, this seductive power. And Frodo, Baggins, The Hobbit... Uh, He has to carry the ring, and he has to go to um, Mordor, which is Mount Doom, and he's got to basically throw the ring into the fire where it was created so that it can be destroyed. And all He gets the ring in the first movie, and and it's cool because it makes him invisible, and then Gollum tries to chase him because Gollum once had the ring, and so there's that story. But the whole point of the trilogy is that the ring represents the power of sin and the seduction of sin and how it just drags frodo down and he battles with it um and then gollum battles with it and eventually um there's this struggle at the very end where Gollum's finger gets bitten off and all that you know that fun stuff but there's just this um scene of fighting between gollum and frodo and they're, and they're wrestling each other over this ring um, and so why do i bring up this intense struggle between two people or or let's put it a different way anybody here rocky fans <laughs> uh, how many of you have seen like rocky 18 yeah. no rock not rocky and you are you thinking of rocky and bullwinkle no, Oh, Rockies, the Colorado Rockies, <laughs> like baseball. No, I'm talking like yo, Adrian, that Rocky. <laughs> yeah, <not today. laughs> yeah, not yeah, today. Really yeah. No, not today. Rocky fought Apollo Creed, lost in Rocky two. He fought Clubber Lang, Mr. T. He fought Dolph Lundgren, which what was his name? Um, Ivan Drago, um, Tommy Gunn. He fought you know so battles. Okay, so you've seen battles, you've seen intense struggles. And so one of the things that we're going to find out when we, when we go to Galatians chapter 5, that right from the start, Paul is going to talk about this battle that every single Christian goes through. Okay? And so I'm going to begin with a question tonight, and this is on your sheet. Man, it's, I can't believe I'm actually back in a room with people doing PowerPoint on a Wednesday night, and we're doing a Facebook Live, and I'm not doing it to a camera with and just and nobody there. So if you're watching on Facebook Live tonight, welcome. We're glad wherever around the country you are or around the world, we're glad that you're watching tonight. So, have to say that cuz we have people watching all over the world. So, here's the question. Does your struggle with sin and don't say you don't struggle with sin. Okay, let's let's assume that <laughs> you struggle with sin. Does your struggle with sin ever cause you to question your salvation? Like do you ever say Man, if I was really saved, I wouldn't I wouldn't have done that. Why did I give in like Sunday we're talking about temptation? Why did I give into that temptation? If I was truly saved, I would never ever struggle with sin. Have you ever been in a church culture where they told you if you struggle with sin, you better, you better question your salvation because you're not you're not a very strong Christian, a very mature Christian. So can we establish from the very beginning that the Christian the Christian struggles with sin. Do you think Paul struggled with sin? What did Paul say? In Romans chapter 7, 18 through 19, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. (laughs) How many of you have ever, ever had that? I want to do the right thing. And I don't do the right thing. I do the wrong thing. And why do I do the wrong thing? I have the struggle within me. And so, oftentimes, we can struggle in the Christian life with sin, and we can be very discouraged by that. But let me give you some encouragement today. I'm going to say something that might shock you. The fact that you struggle with sin is proof that you're a Christian. Okay? Think about it the opposite way. Okay? Think about the opposite way. We'll get back to this. If you were not a Christian, you would not struggle with sin. You would just wouldn't care. You may feel guilty every now and then. You may not like the consequences of getting caught. But it's not a struggle. You're not like Paul, like you're not saying, I really want to do the right thing for God's glory, and I find myself not doing it. You as a, if you didn't, if you weren't a Christian, you just really wouldn't care. Okay. So, here's the hope tonight. Okay? From the very beginning, the struggle with sin is a normal part of the Christian life. So you're not some type of second-class Christian, you're not a weirdo, or you're not alone if somehow you struggle with sin. Now, I'm not going to make you all stand up and say, "Here, my name's Sean Cole and I struggle with fill in the blank." We're not going to do that tonight cuz that's a private thing. But we are going to look at the struggle. So, We're just, and if you came a little bit late, we're not going to get to the fruit of the Spirit until a couple of weeks because the fruit of the Spirit's in the middle of chapter five. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at chapter five, verses 16 through 26. Um, I'm going to teach you guys a word. I know those of you on the Facebook Live, oh, you may be able to see. I'm going to teach you guys a word. It's called pericope. Come on, Wednesday night's pericope. Um, A pericope what you guys would call a paragraph, in theological studies they call it a pericope. A pericope is a unit of thought that, and you see it in your Bible. Okay, do you usually a pericope in your Bible starts with a, with a heading, an uninspired heading. So like in the ESV, what's the heading above this pericope? Keep in step with the Spirit is what mine says. And then there's a break at chapter six. So usually the English translations have looked at the Greek text and said, this is how it divides up in a nice paragraph or or unit of thought or section. So we're going to look at this, and you guys can use a big word, we're going to look at this pericope over the next probably eight or nine, ten, I don't know, I, I don't have my my thing here, but we're going to spend well, at least at least eight weeks, ten probably ten or twelve weeks, up until about Thanksgiving. So, hey, guys, how are we doing? Great. I guess I should say gals. It's fine. It's fine. We're from Colorado. That's right. There you go we That's true. <laughs> okay. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We're just glad you're here tonight. All right. So let's read Galatians 5. Let's read Galatians 5, uh, 16 through 18. Okay. Brent, I see you're watching. Is it coming through vertically like it's supposed to? Okay. Because what I'm seeing here is hopefully what's coming out out there. All right. So here's Paul. Galatians 5, 16. I'm going to keep reading just so we get the whole context. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay, so here's the main point of verses 16 through 18, okay? So this is what we're going to look at tonight. Here's the big idea. Here's the main point. Just distill it down to a sentence. You grow in your Christian walk through an intense struggle with sin. Now that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? So so here's the question. How do you want to grow in your Christian faith? By By struggling with sin. Okay? (laughs) That's like a weird way to put it. So my argument that I think this text is making is you actually grow through your struggle with sin. Now, go back up to verse 13. I know we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's, it's in chapter 5. Paul says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Okay. Don't abuse your freedom that you have in Christ by indulging the flesh. Okay, So let me just stop for a moment. This is not in your notes, but when, when Paul talks about the flesh, there's certain times where he's talking about the human body, like flesh and blood, so you have to look at the context to determine which one he's using. But when Paul talks about the flesh here, he's talking about the, um, the remnants of your sin nature. That Okay, so let me do it this way. This is not in your notes, but we've got to start back from the beginning. Okay, so put your notes aside and just listen for a while, okay? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, did their sin impact every single person that ever lived? Yes, every single person has inherited guilt and corruption from Adam. Okay, so every single person is born with a sin nature. You're born under wrath, okay? So you are born with a sin nature. You're of the flesh. You're ungodly. You're unsaved. Okay, when you get saved, do you automatically ever get rid of that old flesh or do you still carry it around with you? You're a new creation in Christ. You're regenerated. You're born again, but you still have the remaining flesh. Now the question a lot of people ask is, how come God just didn't get rid of it? How come you became a Christian? Why do do you still have to struggle with the flesh? And my question is, I have no earthly idea. That's just the way it is. I can't ask. God never answers that for us. Why didn't you just take it away when you got saved? Well, it'll get taken away when we get to heaven, right? So, you are saved, you are of the Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit, but you still have the remaining flesh, the sinful desires, the sin part of you that won't ever go away. And that part of you battles, struggles, with the new part of you. Does that make sense? Okay, so... What's his main point here? What's he say there in verse 16? Walk by the Spirit. So we're going to look at four truths tonight. This passage of Scripture gives us four truths about walking by the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And we're going to talk about what it means to walk. So four four big ticket items tonight of what it means to walk by the Spirit. Because I want you to look at something here real quick, just before we even dive into these four things. Look at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Okay, look at verse 18. If you're, what? Led by the Spirit. Go down to verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Do you see four different verbs there? Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Who's the most important divine person in this whole passage of Scripture? The Holy Spirit. And it's called the fruit of the Spirit. So everything that we are called to do is through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay, so let's look at these four truths related to walking by the Holy Spirit. So here's truth number one. First of all, it's the command to holiness. The command to holiness. Okay, in verse 16, Paul issues a command for us to walk by the Spirit. It's a command. Walk by the Spirit. It's in the present tense, which in the original language means keep on continuously as a lifestyle be walking by the Spirit. Now, walk. Sometimes the Bible talks about walking with God, walking in the Spirit. The word walk, when the Bible uses the term walk, it's talking about the totality of your lifestyle, the way you live your life, the way that your conduct, your lifestyle. So when you became a Christian, Did you get the fullness of the Holy Spirit in you? Yes. The Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you. Is He living inside of you now? Yes. But do you always walk by the Spirit? Do you always keep in step by the Spirit? So just because the Holy Spirit's living inside of you doesn't mean that you always walk in step with Him. Because Paul wouldn't have had to make this a command if we did. What's your fleshly tendency wanting to do? How do you normally want to walk your life? That's a weird way of putting it. Who who, who, who wants to be in charge of your life? Satan Or Satan or yourself? I want to walk my own path. I'm in charge. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, when you begin to act like that, you're not walking in the Spirit. Now, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.17, a great passage of Scripture, he says, um, now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to what? Freedom to obey. So is it a drudgery to... A, do you need a chair, Deb? Or you, no, I'm good. Do you need... No, I can give you a chair. No, you, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Just totally... We can get you a chair. Okay. Um, Walking in step with the Spirit is something that should be joyful. It should be something that's freeing. It should be something that gives you life and joy, not a drudgery. Um, Sometimes Christians can approach holiness or walking in step with the Spirit as, like, God's out to not let me have any fun, and i got to obey all these rules, and I can't do what I want to do, and... Um, that's not really the Christian life. The Christian life is, the Holy Spirit has changed me from the inside out and he empowers me to live the way that God wants me to live. And that's the true path to freedom. The other way is a path to slavery, a path to bondage. So this command to walk in holiness, walk by the Spirit, it permeates the entire Bible, okay? So do you realize that before time, God sovereignly planned for you to be holy and blameless. That was God's plan for you. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God's plan for us from before we were even born, before the world was created, was to be holy and blameless. Okay, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died for us to be holy and blameless. Um, Ephesians 5, 25-27. This is in the context of husbands loving your wives, but there's some great truth here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. That's the church, Jesus. Having cleansed her, the church, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, before time... God's plan for you was to be holy. Jesus died on the cross for you to be holy. And right now, the Holy Spirit is renewing you to be holy. Ephesians 4, 21-24. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires... And what? To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So God's plan before creation was for you to be holy. Jesus died for you to be holy. The Holy Spirit's working in you to be holy. And God's grace is powerful to give you the ability to say no to Ungodliness. What does Titus 2, 11-12 say? This is from the NIV. Um, for, the grace of God has that, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, what teaches us? God's grace teaches us to say what? No, no to what? Ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Okay. So, if this is a command... Walk by the Spirit. Do we have a choice in the matter? It's a command. It's something that we are to do. Now, in verse 18, Paul says, if you're led by the Spirit, you okay, led by the Spirit. So, okay, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live according to the Spirit. Okay, so what's the difference, if, if there is one, what's the difference between walking... Verse 16, by the Spirit, and being led by the Spirit, verse 18. What's the difference? Is there a marked difference between those two concepts, walking and being led? Okay. When you're walking, who's doing the action? You are. When you're being led, who's doing the action? The Holy Spirit. Okay. So there's a little bit of difference here, Okay. So the Holy Spirit is to influence, guide, direct our lives so that our conduct and behavior and actions are empowered by the Spirit in accordance with the written Word of God. So the word walk by the Spirit, that's more of the active word that tells us about our responsibility, okay? We're not passive channels that don't have any responsibility in this walking into holiness. It's... It's a command for us to obey. So we've got to choose to do that. Choose to walk by the Spirit. Okay, so the walking by the Spirit is more of this, our responsibility. Now, obviously the Holy Spirit lives in us and gives us the power to do that. We're not on our own. He prompts us. He directs us. So walking is more the conscious choice we make to pursue holiness. Being led by the Spirit is more the passive aspect of it, which speaks about the Holy Spirit influencing and guiding us and leading us in his strength. Okay, So he kind of like pushes us and propels us along. He is the one that gives us the strength. Um, so the, interestingly, this word led, being led by the Spirit, some of, some of you are cattle people. Uh, it was often used of a farmer herding cattle or a shepherd leading sheep. A good shepherd. Be led by the Spirit. He's leading you in the way you should go. So here's the bottom line. We voluntarily submit to the Spirit's leading and walking through His power to a life of holiness. Okay? So the first thing that Paul says is we need to pursue holiness it's a command walk by the spirit be led by the Spirit make the conscious choice to pursue the things of the Spirit to pursue holiness it was God's plan from the beginning Jesus died so it would happen you are to do that you have no choice in the matter okay yet okay the second thing we see tonight okay, the first is the command. We're commanded to do it the second thing we see is there's the struggle the struggle okay look at the second half of verse 16. the first half all right, the command walk by the spirit second half of verse 16 and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh Okay, so what are the desires of the flesh? Literally, that word in the original language, the word desires there, it's actually the word over-desires. Like, major desires. Sinful desires. All-controlling desires. Lusts. Cravings of the heart. So, these desires of the flesh don't necessarily have to be sexual in nature. They can be any type of lust or desire or craving or longing that is ungodly, sinful, or seeks to find satisfaction in anything besides Jesus. And what does Paul say there? If you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to gratify. What does it mean to gratify those desires? You're not gonna feed them. You're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna wanna gratify, you're not gonna want to live out or pursue or get or get joy or pleasure out of your lusts, out of your flesh, out of your desires. Okay? Now, verse 17, Paul gives the reality that every single Christian faces. What does he say? The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, so as I said earlier, whether you like Rocky Balboa, not the Colorado Rockies if you do, (laughs) or Gollum fighting Bilbo at Mount Doom over the ring, there is an intense ongoing battle in the heart of every Christian between the desires of the Holy Spirit and the desires of the flesh. What does Paul say here? Does Paul say, hey, the Christian life's never going to be a battle. You're never going to struggle. What what words does he use here? Against, opposed, opposition. Okay, So let me just share with you briefly um, what I think are maybe some sub-biblical or faulty views I'm not going to call them heretical because that's a pretty strong statement, but let's just say some, some sub-biblical views and evangelicalism that have made this teaching very confusing. Okay? You don't, you're not around it as much anymore, but, but in years past, in um, some denominations believe this, and there are brothers and sisters in Christ, we just differ on this issue. And so the one, I guess I would call, faulting view is what we would call um, sinless perfectionism. Sinless perfectionism, okay? This view was popularized in the 1700s by John Wesley. Heard of John and Charles Wesley. Um, Great man of God, his brother, the hymn writer. Um, They started the Methodist denomination. Um, But Wesley, in modern day, um, more of the Arminian camp, would say that it's theoretically possible for a Christian to reach a a state where they don't sin anymore. Okay? Now, they can say it's possible to be free from all known sin. Now, let's just talk about the reality of that. If you're going to make that argument, how how do you define sin? How do you think they define sin? Outward actions, okay? So it would be something like, I can go a day without murdering somebody. <laughs> I can go a day without out- outwardly acting upon my impulses and be sinless that day. Okay, that, that's good, but how does the Bible define sin? Is sin just outward actions? It's, it's words and it's thoughts. I mean, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, outward action. I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So what they've done with the sinless perfection theology is to say, it's theoretically possible for you to reach a point where you don't sin outwardly, and you look good to others, and it's kind of a comparison game. Well, that person, you know, they, they've got, they look like they've got it all together. Um, so you can have a really shiny apple. Pastor Andrew, our youth pastor, was telling us at staff meeting um, over lunch, he bit into an apple He was all excited because of the shiny apple and it was rotten on the inside. You know, that's kind of gross. So, you can look like a shiny apple on the outside side to everybody. Like you've got it all together and you haven't sinned and you're perfect. But on the inside, you could have lust, you could have anger, you could have all these things. and, And it's really kind of a, it creates a plastic, kind of fake, legalistic environment for church where everybody's kind of looking down on everybody else and there's this kind of measuring Christianity and um, there's those that have this higher level of outward obedience that they think that they're perfect, but on the inside they could be really, really sinful. And so we really have to say, you know, that's just a view that I think we could probably reject outright that I don't think the Bible teaches you could ever reach a state of sinless perfection. Okay. Now there's another view it's somewhat similar to the Wesleyan from John Wesley, um, and it's that it's it's kind of the opposite—not the opposite, but it's it's kind of similar. And it says this: Christians can have complete and utter—those are the key words there. Christians can have complete and utter victory over known sin, and that Christians should never struggle. Okay, this is called the Higher Life Movement. If you want a name to it, it's called Keswick. K-E-S-W-I-C-K. It comes from the Keswick region of of England. This higher life, victorious life movement, basically it's the let go and let God. It's like any struggle in the Christian life means there's something wrong with you. Because if you were a good Christian, you'd never struggle. And you can have complete victory over all known sin. Now, hear me. Can you have victory over sin? Yes. Yes. Can you beat addictions and get over issues in your life? Yes. But Does that mean you're ever going to not struggle with those? Does that ever mean that there's not going to be a possibility of relapsing? Okay. Yes, Brent. How is it that they, both of these get past um, John where it says, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar? Well, I don't know how to get past those okay. if you say you're without sin. Basically, what, it, what I'm trying to tell you is that these views have an unrealistic view of the Christian life. What I'm trying to say is that the Bible teaches that the Christian life is a life of struggle. That you're going to struggle with sin. And you may struggle with the same sin till the day you die. And don't feel like you're a second-class citizen because you struggle. Like I said earlier, the fact that you struggle is proof that you're a Christian. Now, I'm not giving you guys an excuse to go send your hearts out, okay? Pastor Sean said, I'm going to struggle forever, so I'm just going to go send my hearts out. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we need to be realistic about the Christian life, that there's always going to be that struggle. Okay, because Paul says it right here. What does he say there? The desires of the flesh are against. What's it against? The spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed. Does anybody have a different translation that uses the word opposed or against? Contrary, contrary okay. Does anybody have a different translation besides opposed or contrary? Do they say opposition. they're they're in opposition? Yeah, opposition, opposed, contrary. Okay, so let me just, let's just break it down this way. There are only two types of people in this world. Number one, there are unregenerate, unsaved people who have not been saved and they don't have the Holy Spirit. And number two, there are regenerate people who are saved and have the Holy Spirit. That's really the only two types of people. Romans 8, 8-9 says this, Those are who in the flesh, a non-believer, cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. And then Romans 8, 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay. Here's, here's where Paul can get a little bit confusing. You are not, you're no longer in the flesh, Or of the flesh because you've been saved but that doesn't mean that you don't still struggle with the flesh does does that make sense or is that confusing your being in the flesh does not define you anymore because you've been saved you've been liberated you've been set free you are now a Christian with the Holy Spirit in you you're no longer in the flesh as your identity of being in bondage to sin but as a born-again Christian you still struggle with the flesh how do I know that Well, look at verse 17. Paul tells us the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. They're opposed to each other. Okay, think about your life before you were saved. Who was on the throne of your life before Jesus was? Who was in charge? Me or you? Your flesh. You were in charge, okay? You were on the throne of your life, taking charge of your life. You called the shots. You lived however you wanted to. You indulged the cravings of your flesh. It was all about you. Okay, when you got saved, who came and lived inside of you? Holy Spirit. He kicked you off the throne, okay? The Holy Spirit kicked you off the throne and said, I'm sitting here. I'm in charge. Okay, what does your flesh want to come do? Uh, Holy Spirit, I don't like you sitting on the throne. Move out of the way and let me sit back there. So there's going to be this, you're going to keep trying to nudge the Holy Spirit off the throne, and he's going to keep knocking you back. <laughs> I don't know. how. He's a spirit. He can't do that. I mean, you understand the expression. But there's going to be this intense battle for control. Now, when you were not a Christian, did you battle with the Holy Spirit when you were not a Christian? No, because you didn't have the Holy Spirit. There wasn't a struggle over power. You just gave in to your flesh. So here's the point you will always have an impulse to sin. An impulse. don't have to act out on it, but you'll always have an impulse to sin because of the remaining flesh in you that's not been totally eradicated, it's not been totally taken away. Now, this impulse or these cravings or these desires, they no longer rule you or have dominion over you or dominate you or enslave you like they did before your salvation, but this remaining sin can still exert a tremendous influence in this internal battle so let me just give you the point here you as a christian are no longer enslaved to sin in bondage to sin controlled by sin that's not your identity anymore but that sin can still do a lot of damage and exert a lot of influence and cause the battle to rage so the battle's real now I want you to think about something. This may be something you never thought of before. There would be something far worse for you as a Christian if there was no internal battle the absence of struggle because your flesh has to- taken total control and you're dominated by sin. What's worse? Having the struggle? or being overtaken by sin and having no struggle whatsoever because sin's taken over. Okay? Now let's talk about James. I talked about the Sunday morning. I want to make sure. I felt like maybe Sunday morning was a little confusing about, I didn't use the word impeccability of Christ because that's a big word, but the fact that Jesus was tempted in every way we were, yet without sin, Jesus couldn't be tempted internally because he didn't have a sin nature. And I, and I talked about how the word tempted can be, tested or tried, it's used both ways in the Bible, but let's read James 1, 14-15, because this tells us how this battle rages, how this thing happens. James 1, 14-15, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? What's your Bible say? His what? Own, Own desire. So you have a desire that's there first. And you're lured and intense by your own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to what? Sin. sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to... Okay, so let's just draw this on the board. Okay, so it's kind of like birth language. Okay, something conceives, gives birth, and then it's full grown and dies. Okay, so what? what's at the... What's What's the zygote? I guess. Or what's the what's the thing that starts? Your internal, what? Your desire. What does he say there? Okay. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's what? Conceive. What does it give birth to? Sin. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. death. Okay. So what started out as a desire. Can ultimately end in spiritual death so James's point is okay there's a point here between desire and sin is there not you can be tempted by the desire and not act out on it where's that point of struggle where's the struggle when your desire wants to give birth to sin that's where the battle is Because a desire is your internal mind and heart. And the sin is probably the outward action that you commit. So there's a progression. Okay, so let's just talk about... I'm going to talk about, I think, what almost everybody goes through as a Christian. And if you don't go through it, I go through it too. I'll share my own experience, okay? So here we go. This is what I think happens. First of all, a suggestion or lustful thought pops into your mind. Has that ever happened to you? Your own desire? A lustful... Have you ever just been driving down the street and thought, where in the world, why did I think that? (laughs) I've counseled a lot of people over the years that have had very graphically sexual dreams, and and they wake up and they're like, I don't know why I had that dream. They never acted out on it, but it was just a dream that they had. Or you're like, why did I, why did I think that about that person? So sometimes a lustful thought pops into your mind. Okay, now, at that point, what can you do? Ask the Holy Spirit to get rid of that, or you can, you can actually think about that that lustful thought, and you can kind of enjoy it and mull it over and think about, hmm, I may want to act out on that. I don't want to think about that fuller more fully. I want to meditate upon that lustful thought. What does Paul tell us to do in that moment? 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And if you hear like whistles blowing, my wife is teaching the kids next door and they're doing a science experiment with little flutes and things so that's probably what you're hearing <laughs> you guys hear <laughs> so we take every thought captive to obey Christ okay so when the thought or the desire comes into your mind you take it captive you ask the Holy Spirit to eradicate it to get rid of it you take it captive to Christ you think about Jesus you asked me stop that thought Don't let me think any further. Don't let me act out on this. But then, what does James say? What what ends up happening, though? If you don't take that thought captive, what does sin give birth to? I mean, what does lust or desire give birth to? Third, you actually, there's a point where before you actually commit the sin, you consent to, to do it. You consent to do it. What does that mean? The thought pops in, I think about it, I haven't taken it captive to Christ. And then I'm thinking about, I really got to think about how I'm going to do this. Okay, I'm going I'm to follow through on it. I'm not going to put it to death. I'm going to follow through on this lust. I'm going to do it. Okay, then what do you do? Fourth, what do you do? You actually sin. You act out on it. Now, here's the problem. Does sin ever take a nap? Is there ever a halftime break where sin goes into the locker room and takes a break? Is sin always attacking you? Is the devil always attacking you? Is the world system always attacking you? So you can never really take a break. The moment you think you can take a break is the moment that you're the most susceptible. What did Jesus say? And I talked about this Sunday morning when we talked about temptation. What did Jesus say to his disciples when he goes to pray in the garden? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay, think about that for a moment. The spirit's willing, willing, but the flesh is weak. What does that mean? I know what I need to do. My spirit tells me I have got to obey Christ, but the flesh is what? Weak. Or as Paul would say here in Galatians, the flesh is at odds with the spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So if you don't watch and pray, what will you do? You'll fall into temptation. So here's my encouragement to you tonight. I said this at the very beginning. The struggle with sin shows that you're truly a believer. I don't want you to ever think that somehow you're not a quote-unquote good Christian if you struggle with sin. Those of you that have come to me for counseling or pastoral counseling and you come in and you share sin with me, you know that I don't sit there and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that. You heathen. I don't want you part of my church anymore. Can I, I can't believe that. Get out of my office. I can't have sinners in my church. You're going to ruin my reputation. Be gone. Have I ever said that to anybody? No, I don't think so. If I have, then slap me across the face and do something bad to me. Um... God sakes, they're doing a lot of that. <laughs> I'm not sending them home, though. No. She's doing a she's she's teaching on Genesis. I'm getting off track. She's teaching on Genesis one and doing some type of science experiment where you can make shapes with sound and create stuff to show how the earth. I don't know. It's Don's very creative. She spent some time thinking about this today, and I just know I had to go to the store and buy. I had to go to the dollar store and buy these little kazoo things and. <laughs> Saran rack, kazoo, and band, and, and um, rubber bands. Okay, whatever. Anyway, this intense internal battle with sin is one of the clearest evidences that you're actually saved. Okay, let me say that again. This intense spiritual battle is one of the clearest evidences that you are saved. That, that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because what have you heard your whole life maybe? If you struggle with sin, you, you're probably not a good Christian. Or if you struggle with sin, there's something wrong with you. Or if you are struggling with sin, you're not quite where you need to be. Paul would say the actual struggle is actually probably pretty good proof that you are a Christian. And I've said this before. Do non-Christians struggle with sin? Careful language there. Do non-Christians struggle with sin? No, they don't struggle with sin. Non-Christians don't struggle with sin. They may have a guilty conscience here and there, but they don't actually have what Paul says here, this internal struggle, because what do they not have? They don't have the Holy Spirit opposed to their flesh. What do they have? They just have the flesh. Is their flesh fighting the Holy Spirit? No, they're enslaved to their flesh, so they're just doing what they want to do. It's not a struggle for them. They're just acting upon what they want to do. Actually, they're slaves to sin. They're a slave to it. Let me put it this way. A non-Christian cannot say no to sin. A non-Christian cannot say no to sin. Why? They are a slave to sin. A Christian can say no to sin. Why? We have the Holy Spirit. Do we always say no to sin? No. Is it a struggle to say no to sin? Yes. Does the Christian struggle to say no to sin? Does a non-christian struggle to say no to sin? No, they just sin. Okay? There's only, going to be two, there's only going to be two types of people. Christians who struggle with sin and those in heaven. So when you get to heaven, you won't ever struggle with sin again. But while you're here, you're going to struggle. Now, what I want to say is because this is real, this is the real situation of Christians, there's a very real application for us today. We need to be very realistic with each other about this struggle, and not walk in arrogance or judge that somehow we've arrived and we never struggled. Cindy. So I think you answered your own question at the beginning. You said I, you know, I can't answer why we still have flesh. I think this is one of the very important reasons we still have a flesh. If, if God had taken the flesh out and we didn't struggle, we wouldn't understand anybody else's struggle. Yeah, we wouldn't understand other people's struggles. Yeah. So here's the thing. What I don't ever want to see happen in a manual is to have a culture of puffed up pride, I've got my act together, I never struggle, I never have a problem. Walls Plastic. I, you know, I don't ever have problems because that's not realistic. And the pride itself is sin. And pride is sin. I'm burdened that we should have a culture here, to Manuel, where people are free to say, "I'm struggling and I need help and I need someone to come alongside me." And the person in the church doesn't say, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that." The person says, "You know what?" But for the grace of God, there go I. Let me put my arm around you and let's walk through this together, because we both need God's grace. We both need Jesus. Let's walk through this together. The problem is we're afraid to do that, aren't we? Um, People will come to me with their problems because I'm the pastor. But very rarely will people go to each other because what are we afraid of? Judgment. If somebody judgment make fun of, you know. like, for example, let's say at the end of the worship service there's, we're singing the final song and somebody goes down the front and prays at the altar. What's the first thing a lot of people think? What's wrong with that guy? He must have some sin in his life. Well, what if the person just wanted to go down there and pray? Or what if a person felt led just to come down and talk to me and they really do have a problem and they need to deal with Jesus right then and there? We as a church should be praying for that person, saying, my goodness, maybe I need to go down and pray. Um, I just think sometimes in church culture, we can be very plastic, we can be very, I've got my act together, I never struggle, I don't want to share, I don't want to be vulnerable because, number one, two things, number one, I don't want to be made fun of on my side, and number two, I don't know if I want to deal with your stuff. <laughs> the other way around, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to give because I might be judged, but I really don't want to take because I don't know if I want to deal with the stuff you have come. So it's a two-way street. Then what does that create? A bunch of people walking around dealing with problems by themselves never sharing it and acting like everything's great when it maybe's not. And let me just say this this COVID things wrecked a lot of people um, there's a lot just nationwide I'm not, I'm not I mean even in our church nationwide suicides are up depression is up anxiety is up all these things are up because people have had to deal with this by themselves and now that we're back together I mean we're pretty much back to normal you guys aren't social distancing. You're not wearing masks. <gasps> people may be shocked on TV to, or on the Facebook. This looks just like it was pre-COVID, okay? So we're pretty much here in Logan County, back to normal. So as we get back where we can actually share each other's lives, my challenge to us is would we have a church culture that's loving, encouraging, welcoming, open? Um, and it's got to be an effort by everybody. It can't just be one or two people. And that's difficult. Because that means vulnerability, that means getting rid of pride, that means willing to take some risks, that means accepting somebody if they tell you something that's shocking for you to to be like. I mean, as a pastor, I've heard everything. You can't shock me. I mean, I pretty much, I've, I've had people on my couch in my office tell me things I thought I'd never hear, and you know, it's life. People go through stuff, and, you, and we need to be able to have the, you know, the the, the strength to be able to share that. Um, so let's just make sure we don't have an attitude of pride because Paul says this in First Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay. When you're walking by the Spirit, when you're being led by the Spirit, what are you not doing? You're not gratifying the desires of the flesh. You're pleasing the Lord, okay? It's interesting, um, in the Hall of Faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews makes a very interesting statement about Moses. And you guys know about Moses, prince of Egypt, how he grew up in the court of Pharaoh, and he had all the pleasures... Probably at, a, at one point in, in, in Moses' life, before he killed the Egyptian and ran off, because he was the son of you know basically the kingdom, he probably had as many women, as much food, as much money as he wanted at his fingertip. You want a harem of women, Moses? We'll get it for you. You want the spread of food? We'll get it for you. You want unlimited pleasure? We got it for you. Okay. Well listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy what? The fleeting pleasures of sin. Now let's stop right there. Fleeting pleasures of sin. Okay, let me just ask you a trick question. Is sin pleasurable? Yes. Would you sin if it wasn't fun? Okay, what's that adjective he puts before pleasures? Mine says fleeting. What is fleeting? Here hear one minute, gone on the next. So sin's going to bring you pleasure. It's going to bring you happiness, but it's going to be fleeting. It's going to be not lasting. It's going to be temporary. You may get immediate gratification for maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours, however long, but it's going to be, as Paul says here, you're going to be gratifying the desires of the flesh. Temporary gratification, gratifying your flesh, fleeting ple- pleasure. You're not walking by the Spirit. Okay, so number one, we've seen the command. Walk by the Spirit. We're commanded to hold Number two, we see the struggle. It's going to be hard. There's going to be an internal battle. You're going to struggle. There's going to be this internal struggle. Now, third, we see the practice of holiness. And this may be where you're a little bit frustrated with me. Because I've said, okay, be holy. Paul says, be holy. And then I told you, it's going to be an intense battle. And you're not going to have complete victory over sin until you get to heaven. But what have I not told you? How do you walk by the Spirit? Okay, Paul does not answer that specifically in this passage of Scripture. <laughs> but I'm going to answer it for you tonight. So the question is, how do you walk by the Spirit? How do you do this? How do you not gratify the desires of the flesh? How do you walk by the Spirit? Okay, so when we're saved, in our initial salvation, we're saved by grace, we need to, We need grace to continue in our daily walk. And God has appointed for us what have historically been called the means of grace to help us grow How do you grow in holiness? How do you grow in your faith? The means of grace. Now, what are the means of grace? What do I mean by the the means of grace? This is an old term, but it's a good term. What are the means of grace for you as a Christian to grow? These are practices you can do that God uses as a means or a way to strengthen you, feed you, provide for you, grow you. You're responsible to take advantage of these means and put forth the effort to do them, but through them the Holy Spirit will empower you to walk in holiness. So, the means of grace are things you do that the Holy Spirit uses to grow you in grace, to strengthen you. So, the question is, what are these things that you do? Well, the best expression of the means of grace is are found in the early church in the book of Acts. It tells us what the early church did. What did they practice? Now, this is not rocket science. I'm not going to give you like the latest greatest tip that you're going to, you know, what, what's the secret, Sean? When I'm going to tell you, you're be like, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Because that's what the Bible says. Okay, so Acts 2:42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Four basic practices or means of grace. Some people call them spiritual disciplines. I don't necessarily like that term. Um, Spiritual disciplines is kind of more of a modern term. I like the means of grace because it has the word grace in there, that God uses these as, as graces in your life to strengthen you. What are these four things that you can do to walk in holiness to grow your faith? Number one, Bible intake or scripture saturation. I like to call it scripture saturation. What do you think about when you hear the word saturate? Soak yourself in the scriptures, okay? So scripture saturation, they devote themselves to the apostle teaching. Number two, prayer. Number three, fellowship. And interesting, number four, the Lord's Supper. Okay, So historically, the means of grace have had two categories. There's the private means of grace, and there are the public means of grace. So what you do in private and then what you do in public as a way to grow you. So let's first of all look at the private means of grace. This is what you do personally, privately in your own life as a means to grow. So this, it's been known by different things. Daily quiet time, personal devotion, reading your Bible, daily Bible reading. Um, So this is where you read your Bible personally. You study your Bible, you memorize your Bible, you meditate on the Bible um some of you do the annual bible reading plan which is good it gets you through the whole bible i personally don't like it because i fall behind by about february 1st <laughs> and i get feeling guilty because i fall alive. and then i'm just reading to catch up so i'm speed reading i'm like i don't even remember what i read but i got through it i checked it off i got through second hezekiah I mean i got through so it's good because it exposes you to the whole Bible, but here's what I'd recommend you do. It may be, for some of you, more beneficial to take a smaller portion of Scripture and just meditate and focus and memorize that smaller portion of Scripture and let that speak to you, as opposed to just reading a huge chunk and checking it all. So, for example, you may even take this pericope we talked about earlier. Um, or like Sometimes when you read the Bible, you see the paragraphs. Take a paragraph. Or like in the Gospels, take a, take a, an account or a narrative or a, a, a parable or, or whatever, a chapter even, and just spend time in that one chapter, reading, memorizing, meditating, getting down deep into your souls. Um, so personal, private scripture saturation. This also includes uh, private times in prayer, sometimes prayer and fasting. Um, Sometimes people over the years have asked, is fasting required? Are we commanded to fast? Um, We're commanded to pray, but I think you have to be led to fast. Um, Sometimes we, as a church, have gone through periods of prayer and fasting where I've called the church to fasting. Now, I'm not being legalistic and saying, you've got to fast. It's just corporately we're going to do this. Sometimes God may call you to fast. Why do you fast? You fast as a means to deprive your body of food so that you can focus intently on prayer um, and, and, you know, struggling with the Lord and, and things like that. So, basically, in short, the private means of grace are your personal daily time with the Lord where you read the Bible as food for your soul, pour out your heart to God, prayer, confession, self-examination. Um, I like journaling, although the Bible doesn't say thou shalt journal. Um Sometimes it's good to journal because if you date it and you write out your prayers and you write out your thoughts You can go I've gone back. It's interesting Sometimes I'll pull out the journals that I had when I first came to Emmanuel. It's funny like how nervous I was I will tell you I was really nervous when I first came to Emmanuel. It was like almost 15 and a half years ago and about the first six months Every Sunday I would have major butterflies and almost feel like I was gonna throw up before I get up to preach I was so nervous. I mean you guys may never have known that but, I mean, and I would be like, I wrote my journal like, um, just things like, God, I'm, am I'm, I'm so overwhelmed at Emmanuel. It's such a, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's good to go back and see how some things have never changed. Some of the issues I saw when I first came, or some of the issues we have 15 years later, It's like, whoa, Sean, you haven't done a very good job of leading. It's still going on here after 15 years. But it's good to go back and, and look at how you've grown, what you struggled with, and so journaling is just kind of a good way to document that. Um, J.C. Ryle has written a really good book. It's from the late 1800s called Holiness. But he says this about private, the private means of grace, like the, the personal quiet time. The person who does not take pains about these things must never expect to grow. Here are the roots of true Christianity. Wrong here, and you're wrong all the way through. So, the private means of grace are your personal private devotional times with the Lord, prayer, fasting, journaling, scripture reading, scripture memorization. Okay, But there's also the public means of grace, what you do with others in the corporate gathering of the worship service. So the, the corporate or public means of grace would be public worship service, where you sing, give of your time, talents, and treasures. You listen to the preaching of God's word. You participate in the Lord's Supper. Think about think about this for a moment. During COVID, when you were watching me on live stream in your living room in your pajamas, and I know you're eating your cinnamon rolls and drinking your cotton ox. No, Second, like look through the screen. No, that wasn't the same as being with other believers, was it? I mean, you were still getting preached, you were still getting the word, but was it the same? Those times, let's just take COVID out of the equation. The times that you've been out of church have been have those been really good growth spurts in your life, or is the times you're in church that you feel that connection? It's when you're back in church, um, and so being part of the church family. Um, so one of the primary ways that you fight this internal battle, temptation, struggle, trials, is to walk in, by walking in the Spirit, is to not give up on the public gatherings of worship where you can sit under sound preaching, you can be among God's people, you can celebrate the Lord's Supper each month, and, and these strengthen your faith. You may not think you're getting strengthened each Sunday when you come out. You may think, well, that was, just, that was an okay sermon, or that was an okay service, or da-da-da-da. And you may not feel like a liver shiver, or you may not have this overwhelming sense of, oh, that was a power. But, okay, it's like eating, it's like eating a daily meal. What happens if you don't eat? You go hungry. So being together as part of God's church, week in and week out, it's God's means of growing you and sustaining you and encouraging you by having you around other people. So Hebrews 10, 24-25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near so meeting together so one of the other things he says on that in acts two forty two that they did was fellowship so fellowship with other believers in the worship service and in small group settings where you can know others needs and be known okay this is a more of a large group lecture teaching not really interactive because you know we, we'll have time for questions but our growth groups being part of a growth group where you can be connected with other believers, and you can have them pray for you. You can be in a smaller group, or you can ask questions. So get connected to a growth group. So let me just ask these questions. Are you taking advantage of the private and public means of grace God has given you as gifts to grow you in your faith? Are you devoting yourself to Scripture, reading, meditating, memorizing, studying, sitting under good preaching and teaching? Question question you have to answer for yourself. Are you devoting yourself to prayer, both privately and publicly, to pray with others and for others? Are you devoting yourself to fellowship? Are you connected with other believers in healthy relationships where you can share your struggles and grow and encourage one another? And are you actively participating in the Lord's Supper where God promises to nourish us spiritually through remembering the body and blood of Christ? I thought few weeks ago when we did the Lord's Supper for the first time, there was a sweet spirit on the Sunday morning. I I mean, I couldn't quite explain it, Um, but we have been gone for so long and just to take the Lord's Supper together, it's like it's very special. Now we're taking it this Sunday because we're going back the first Sunday of the month. Um, Half the church is going to be gone, I found out, this Sunday because it's Labor Day weekend, but we are going to be taking the Lord's Supper and we're back to the first Sunday of the month taking that together. Um, the The COVID Lord's Supper packets where you take your own yeah, we're not passing the plates. You've got your own individually wrapped. All right, and the last thing, I said there was four things. So number one, there's the command, walk in holiness. We've got to be holy. We've got to walk in step with the Spirit. Number two, there's going to be a struggle. Number three, how do you do it? You do it through these means of grace that God has given you. But the victory, the victory of holiness. I'll give you some hope tonight. There's a promise in this passage. What's the promise? Even though there is a constant warfare and in this intense struggle, Paul's point is that gradually as a Christian, the Holy Spirit weakens the flesh. The flesh will never have the upper hand of a true believer. It's important to understand the original language here in the Greek text. In verse 16... The phrase is a command that we are actively to obey, walk in the Spirit. That's a command in verse 16, the first half. But the second half is not a command. It's actually a promise. A promise. It's the result or the consequences of what will happen if you grow. So the command is walk by the Spirit. And what's The promise you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word gratify there in verse 16 actually means bring to completion. Carry it out completely. In the original text, it means you will not carry out completely your slavery or your indulgence or your um, lust to sin. And the word not, you will not gratify it's a double negative. What's a double negative? I'm, I'm gonna know not. I'm gonna know not absolutely not. It's a double negative, which means that a true Christian will not ultimately or completely gratify the lusts and cravings of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not know absolutely not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, this is a great promise because It means that as a believer, because the Holy Spirit's in you, you will never be totally or completely dominated by sin where you're in bondage to it and you never can be freed. If you're a true Christian, who lives inside of you? The Holy Spirit. Will the Holy Spirit ever leave you? Will the Holy Spirit ever let the flesh ultimately get an upper hand? If you go the route of not walking in the Spirit and gratifying, what does the Lord often do in your life to get your attention and bring you back? He oftentimes will discipline you. Okay, But the Holy Spirit will guarantee that you finish the race, and that you won't ultimately, completely, to the end, gratify. And then in the second half of verse 18, what does Paul say there also? We're not under the law. Look at verse 18. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're no longer under the enslaving, condemning power of the law. You've been free. So here's the promise. The promise for us as believers is that because Christ has set us free, we will never totally, that's the key word, we will never totally or utterly or ultimately succumb to the cravings of the flesh so that we're dominated and in bondage to our lusts, that there is no hope of ever gaining victory over sin. When we engage in long periods of disobedience, God will providentially bring discipline into our lives to draw us back to him. He may allow, and listen to this, he may allow us to be engulfed in the flesh for a season to see how miserable it is and how desperate we need him in our lives. Okay, let me say that again. If you're a true child of God and you want to sin your heart out, God may say, I'm going to let you do that for a while so that you're so miserable that all you'll do is cry out to me. And you may have some really bad consequences from it as a form of discipline, but I'm doing it because I love you. I'm not going to let you all go all the way, but I may let you go for a season and then discipline you and bring you back. God can do that sovereignly if he wants to as a way to make you miserable and see your need for him. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son for whom he receives. Now, you don't want to get to that point, do you? (laughs) Where where God has to discipline you and make you be in a a miserable place to bring you back to repentance. What's the point of this passage? Not to get to... The point is don't gratify the lust of your flesh. The point is walk in step with the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. How do you do that? Through the means of grace. We can walk by the Spirit. We can be led by the Spirit. And sin will progressively become weakened in our hearts. And this pursuit of holiness will be lifelong, sometimes painful, grueling process of obedience. But in the end, the Holy Spirit will defeat the flesh. Thus ends those two verses, three verses for tonight, and we it looks like we've got about 10 minutes left for questions, well, 13 minutes left for questions, I can let you guys go, or we can ask questions, and you can go wait in the foyer for your kids, what questions do you guys have tonight, or comments, I'll even take Snyder remarks, I'm just glad you're here tonight, we're together, all right, I see people folding up their Bibles, and don't be afraid if you have a question. I'm more than happy to answer. All right. So you thought you were coming tonight to hear about the fruit of the Spirit. You are, but you've got to get the context right of where Paul starts before we just jump right into the fruit of the Spirit. Um, all right. Well, let me pray for us, and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll see you guys next week. So, Father, thank you for this time tonight. We do, Holy Spirit, we do want to walk in step with you. We're so thankful that you've been given to us as a gift to live in our hearts, to empower us, to um, be our comforter, to be our um, source of strength. Lord, I pray for every single one in this room and even those that may be watching on the live stream that we would all not gratify the desires of the flesh, but we would walk in step with the Spirit. And we'd realize this battle's real. It may be grueling, and there may be many that are struggling right now. Lord, just to help them know that they ultimately will be successful because, Lord, you will given them the strength so lord help us to encourage one another help us not to be prideful help us to be open and honest with our struggles and help us to be a church that can come alongside one another and truly love one another and accept one another in the lord and minister grace and we ask this in jesus name amen all right thanks i will finish this